Yesterday is history. Tomorrow is a mystery, but today is a gift. It is not our abilities that show what we truly are. It is our choices. Hello and welcome to Jen Taylor Rerouting, where being rude is never acceptable, but sarcasm is welcome and swearing isn't always a bad option. Let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Jen Taylor Rerouting. Thanks for tuning in. If you need more information, just go to jentaylor.net, where I have everything at your disposal from what it's like to live as a mom to 13 kids to my podcast, public speaking, coaching, or purchasing my book. All in one place, jentaylor.net, easy peasy, lemon squeezy. Today, I'm super excited. I have Susan Eastman, and it's always fun when I have people on that I know. Susan, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. So Susan, I'm going to tell the story about us meeting, which is hilarious, actually. Um, we went to a women's retreat. I went to a women's retreat. I was, what, do you remember what year this was? Um, well, it had to be six or so years ago. Was it 2011? Yeah, Maybe? you're asking me to remember things. I know. <laughs> me too. That's why I'm asking, right? <laughs> So I signed up for this women's retreat and I was so excited because I'd never done anything like this. And I was a runner and as women, I feel like we don't do enough to support each other. So I paid for it, which was, I, I mean, I remember it was so hard to come up with the money. And so this women's retreat was in Kingston, Washington, and it was runners who, and we got to try out products. And so, <clears throat> so cool. We're in this big house and bunking up and all it was so fun it was like camp for adult women super fun and uh i got products you know from different companies and i put them on and this beautiful blonde woman approached me uh <laughs> named susan and uh, i didn't know it at the time and i had these compression sleeves on my calves and she said pretty much you told me you have those on inside out and backwards <laughs> 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 I just couldn't let you go around like that. <laughs> and I was like, oh, is that what the, you're like? <laughs> it was, I, of course, it was embarrassed. I'd never tried them on, any of them on before. I never used them before. And you said, yeah, I put the L and the R on <laughs> left and right. Uh, so you helped me <laughs> straighten my life out. At that point. <laughs> so glad <laughs> oh my god and it was i remember looking at you and laughing and like you feel dumb but at the same time i'm so glad that it's like having a booger in your nose or your zipper down and no one tells you the stuff in your teeth you know and i said how did you know and you said well because i designed them <laughs> and i was like i'm in the presence of greatness here so um I felt like such a newbie, but so okay with being a newbie. And so I put them on correctly and I have never used another compression product. Actually, that's not true. I have tried other compression products. What I've learned since that day, six years ago, is that yours are still the best and my favorite. Right. And so I, I, you have the sleeves, you have, um, tell me about the products for it's Rico fit. It's recovery and fitness together. And um, people can find you that way and order your products through that. And I'll have that in the show notes. But tell me what your products are. Um, Rico Fit Compression Gear is a company based on me being Princess in the Pea. Uh, I used to suffer from shin splints, chronic shin splints. And I was sick of always trying to heal from them. So um, long story short, came up with this 
compression sleeves, as you were just describing, but we were different from the other things on the marketplace because, uh, like you just pointed out, you didn't like the other things you found, mostly because they were ugly, they were uncomfortable, they were hot. Um, and, it, you know, just having to wear these things in the first place, you want to at least look techy and cool. You know, if you have to be dealing with an injury or whatever. But this ended up being something that took on a life of its own because we use this fabric we import from Italy. It's this carbon-based fabric. So it's thin and strong, and, and the design allows it to be very flattering, never mind performance-based. So um, that was the first product. And then the next one was a... Um, cast sleeve that had a pocket built into it so you could put icing gel packs in there so if you were trying to do the rest ice compress elevate thing it allowed you to compress and ice at the same time so that was another one um and then we have these arm cooling sleeves which were great for sun protection and uh literally cooling because of the fabric that we make them with and um the full leg compression sleeve was something that takes the cast sleeve that takes up the top of the thigh that um, is great for recovery. It's not really based, well, designed for performance, for running in, for example, but they're great for putting on after a hard workout or an have athlete to sleep in them. Um, and then the last product, which we introduced last year, was a woman's compression tight, and that's been a real popular one. That one, it's really flattering. And, I know, uh, I know I have pictures of myself in it, uh, in those, yeah. you know, yes. yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, it's fun that it works, but the fact that it makes your butt look really good. Right? <laughs> so, um, and I I understood the theory of compression because my adopted dad was diabetic. So that theory of wanting to keep the blood flow, and for people who travel a lot and you're on an airplane and you're sitting or a very sedentary job, that whole idea of increasing your circulation Right. in those situations so i understood the philosophy of it and but not necessarily i don't think i'm not sure I, i'd had like pain but i hadn't experienced an injury or a something chronic like you had it was more just like you went for a hard run and your calves were screaming and that was it but so i loved it so we met at the women's retreat and that was um you were one of the companies that was there uh, mm -hmm. that we got we got to try all these products and but i remember looking at you and thinking this is like my sister from another mister you know where <laughs> i just i i just instantly loved you not because my calves were awesome but <laughs> <laughs> because of who you were and and then you've made jewelry in the past and we're going to kind of jump around the timeline a little bit, but you had a past life making jewelry. And so you had jewelry there. And I remember I got a necklace. It was kind of on a black cord and it was a starfish. And one of the stories I tell almost every time I public speak is the starfish story. So it was very near and dear to me. And then I don't know, it must've broken. I, I don't have it. It's gone. And so I remember writing to you like, I was crying. Can you please make me another starfish necklace? And at that point you were going through the flood and everything was packed away. And so I have pictures. I do have, I have pictures I can, of you I and can, I. I can make another. Ooh. I think I'm at the place in my life now where I can make you another. Yes. I'd be delighted. Yes. So <laughs> we, now I'm going to jump back. Now we're going to go back in time. So you grew up, um, and I love this. Maybe this is part of why we related, because you were number six of eight children, four boys and four girls, and I had this huge family, which at least when we spoke about 
um, family type stuff, you at least, you understood what it was like to be in a big family. Right. So you were number six and dad was in the Navy Mm -hmm. and we're also both from the East coast. Right. And, but we don't have accents. (laughs) I know. Very much on purpose. (laughs) <laughs> so, I, yeah, on purpose, yes. We so have the New, I said, Hampshire, the New Hampshire connection, too. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So, I know. See, it was just you were. You were my sister from another mister. So, you <laughs> you, you moved up around a lot. Yes. So, talk about growing up in that, because there were some great things and some challenging things about moving around for you. Absolutely. Yeah, we were moving every couple of years. You know, my dad was a naval officer, so we were based up and down the East Coast. Um, from Boston down to Virginia and uh, Newport, Rhode Island, Annapolis, Maryland, you know, different places. Um, so always being a new kid was not easy, especially because I was a very shy person, a shy little kid. But at the same time, I was always in a crowd. I mean, with all these siblings, you know, we had this whole gang. That, you know, we were moving a lot, but we were all we always knew somebody because all of us are all around each other. So it was supportive. You know, we all it was just what we did. Um, it was just the way life was. So that part was good. You know, it forced you to have to be, as a new kid, you have to learn to kind of step up and and uh, just be present. You know, you learn to adapt. Um, not that that's necessarily easy. And I think I mentioned to you that I still don't like change. <laughs> just because I moved a lot and I experienced a lot in new places, it's always educational. It's always good to have an experience in different parts of the country. But um I didn't want to do that once I was a grown up and my kids have not had the benefit of moving around a lot because <laughs> I didn't want to leave. I'm now, you know, I'm in Boulder, Colorado, and uh, this has been home for a long time. So it's good though. It is. I mean, it's not a bad thing moving around. You're right. One thing I learned from moving around was I knew where I didn't want to live. I, I knew some about what I didn't want and that Absolutely. helped to narrow down what you did want. But so <clears throat> Tell me about mom and dad. <laughs> well, let's see. They are both, uh, they're both from New England, uh, New Hampshire and Vermont. And um, yeah, my dad went to the Naval Academy and my mom was, you know, this small town Irish, pure Irish girl. Um, and it was all very glamorous, I'm sure, marrying an officer and all that. But um, she was Catholic. And that's why there's eight kids. Um, she was the best. She was one of those really strong women. You know, she was um, really good at recognizing each of us eight kids as individuals. You know, we all were raising each other, too. I mean, there's always a new baby, and oh my God, you know, we're all taking care of each other. But, you know, we always felt recognized. She had a really amazing ability to make each of us feel like an individual, not just part of this gang. So maybe she didn't have a lot of time with each of us, but. Um, we were very well loved. We, we knew we were appreciated, and um, she saw each of us for our talents. My dad was a little less, you know, that whole generation. Um, he was gone a lot, which is actually okay, turned out. Um, he, you know, was a stoic New Englander, strong, silent type, and very athletic. He had been on the Olympic development ski team, but uh, when he went to the Naval Academy, that did, but he was a big golfer, tennis player, you know, sailor. So real athlete, um, but not that present for us. So even when he was around, it, he was just off doing his own thing. So yeah, that, that ended up being okay. He had his issues, you know, he, he liked his drink and that made for some very difficult times. So um, I don't know, we just did what we had to do. 
<laughs> didn't really happen part of the theme too much as part of uh, an emotional engaged level. Right. And you're right about the being gone a lot. And I don't know if this is, I'm, I'm so curious about this when I talk to other people, definitely this is a, the alcoholism is a generational thing. People don't understand what it was like in the seventies and how women were still treated or portrayed and what the level of alcohol use was. And I also don't know, I'm kind of curious, is it a new England thing, certain attitudes, behaviors, and I, and I don't know, uh, where one begins and the other ends and how connected they are. But we grew up the same way in that regard, very alcoholic, mm -hmm. abusive, non-involved fathers. And that mm -hmm. was, I mean, I have this conversation often. It's very common. So you do, you do what you have to do to get through that. Right. As a side note, out of my own personal curiosity, how did you decide, did, you didn't keep on with the Catholic church, did you? No. No, my mom's faith was very strong, and it's a whole Irish Catholic kind of thing. Um, I realized I was, uh, it was my sophomore year of college, and uh, I was, you know, Sunday morning, been partying the night before, as college kids do, and I dragged myself out of bed. I was hungover, felt terrible, dragged myself to church, and sitting there in church, realizing the only reason I'm in church is because my mom expects me to go. I wasn't there because I got anything from it. In fact, I hate organized religion. Don't get me off on that tangent because I think the world's a mess because of organized religion of any faith. But um, I'm sitting there in church just going, I'm being a total hypocrite, you know? Just because I'm here doesn't mean I'm honoring my mom's faith. I'm just, I'm being a total liar. So that's when I stopped. And then when I got married, when I was 27, got married um, by a judge on top of a mountain, and um, my, one of my older brothers who lived in Steamboat Springs, he was this total mountain man, you know, I mean, mountain man and living on his ranch outside town and, you know, cattle running around and every year he had a different girlfriend and uh, he was going to church. But when I told him I was getting married on top of this mountain by a judge, he was like, what? How can you do that to mom? <laughs> I'm like, what? What did that got to do with anything? It's like, who are you to be judging? You know, I remember like, oh my God, you know, but that was uh, the respect we had for my mom and her faith, obviously. But um, I went ahead and had this and my husband's parents were Catholic and um, they were upset too. And my mom told the story of how she went to her priest and expressed her dismay that I was getting married without the church. This priest said, hey, just be glad she's getting married. She's not just living with the guy anymore. And I'm like, okay, that's one priest, actually. I could go to his mass. All right. That, he seems to be together. So, uh, yeah, that the, the organized, uh, you know, and then I'm even, yeah, the spiritual thing is one thing. The church thing is something else, you know. And again, a lot of us that came out of New England, and I wasn't raised Catholic, but I, I mean, I was one of the only people that wasn't in all of my everyone that I knew and we all kind of felt the same way either they're very much involved or very much not involved I think there's a there's a lot of pressure and fear and guilt at that oh, the point guilt. the guilt and shame guilt. part of your faith is like oh yeah positive that you know here's here's actually my first awakening in the, in the Catholic Church I was in a Catholic school I was in second grade and back then this was in Norfolk Virginia and um that that was when the church still expected women to wear head coverings you know, in church. 
and we used to have these little lace kind of head coverings and um the school had the church attached and we had to go into the church one day during school and i i don't know i didn't have my lace doily <laughs> for my head and the nun made me bobby pin a kleenex to my head so my head wouldn't be bare in church i'm seven years old i'm a girl little girl and i'm sitting there so angry because next to me stupid bobby a boy he didn't have to do this just because he's a boy that was when i had my first wake up call like this is wrong there's no reason that i'm less that i have to cover my head with a kleenex to make me better in the eyes of god oh my god so that was that was the beginning of the end <laughs> that so i have a story even though this isn't about me but i remember going to thanksgiving at my grandmother's house and my aunt put the doily on her head and I had no idea. I was, I was younger and I asked her why. And she said, because it shows God that while she's praying, she's beneath her husband. I was like, Oh, hell no. Yeah. Okay. And, and that works for you because <laughs> I, I was like, live it. And I was little and I was the same thing. Like your seven year old kid. And you're like, does anyone else notice how screwed up this is? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's that. So after that, every time we used to ask her to pray on purpose and we used to all sit there at the table and try not to laugh. It was terrible. It was terrible. That is terrible. With all the cousins and oh, it was terrible. Anyway. All right. So (laughs) you grew up on the East coast and then you, now what made you go to university of Colorado in Boulder? You know, it's really funny because, um, I never realized that New England made me claustrophobic. You know, when I was, when I grew up there, I never realized, I mean, I was, you know, growing up down the East Coast, but um, I just never felt like I belonged there. I mean, I, I remember being a little kid and I was a cowgirl. I mean, I was always in cowgirl boots. This is Annapolis, Maryland, you know, like Chesty Baby. I had the cowgirl boots. I had the holster. I had the cowgirl hat, you know, and I liked walking around in my boots. They made a great sound on the sidewalk. And, you know, I felt really cool. I couldn't wait to go out West. I, and I'd never been there. I mean, I was a little kid. I remember being uh, maybe five or six years old, sitting at the kitchen table. This is in Norfolk, Virginia. My parents were standing there. My dad was in his naval uniform. They're drinking their coffee. He's getting ready to go to work. I'm sitting there eating my cereal. And now that I'm a parent, I totally get the cuteness of this. But at the time, I was so insulted. I announced to them that when I grew up, I was going to move out west and have a ranch of Palomino's. And they burst out laughing. And I was so pissed off like oh, they're laughing at me well now that I've had kids and all the funny things that they say I mean I write them down you know never small because it's like where did that little person come up with this funny thing you know this statement like and they were so you know sure well that was that was what I was doing but I took it as this big insult so I ended up I don't know I always wanted to come out west and when I came out here to Boulder to go to the University of Colorado I had never visited the school I came out here cold you know no prior visit and when I got here, it was like, oh, I'm home. <laughs> it was so strange. I arrived at a place that I was home. And here's the best part. When people would find out I was from the East Coast or New Hampshire, they would say, why don't you talk like that? You talk like you're from here. <laughs> so I was like, okay. So there yep. you go. You were meant to be there. And exactly. Then, and then you majored in journalism, which is what I wanted to major in. I love that you majored. Back then, I mean, we didn't have the foresight to even know that the internet was coming. But back then, it seemed so tedious to get writing out there. 
Um, so I'm so, I, I mean, I was going to join Greenpeace and get a journalism degree and write for National Geographic because clearly, I, like that's, <laughs> that's an inspirational goal. That's a good <laughs> that was my major plan. I didn't do any of those things, but um, you, the, and what you said, you said something to me in, when you sent me the information, you said it was an awesome career. Most of my jobs didn't exist until I had them. And that's kind of why I didn't do journalism. But you, the shy kid, took the adventurous route and created these jobs. So take me through the journey of all of those. And also, you being adaptable and flexible and kind of on the fly, that was that upbringing coming back to support you. Yeah, I think so, because I was scared shitless most of the time. I'd be doing these things like, you know, oh, my God, do I even know what I'm talking about? But anyway, I had a standard journalism degree in print, um, went to work at a newspaper, a weekly newspaper, and um, I was also always a weekend warrior. So it was covering sports, like the stories wrote themselves. Then I had to go cover city council meetings, and I'd be like, oh, I couldn't even stay awake. It was like, oh, my God. So um, I did the newspaper. I was an um, assistant editor, and I did that for several years, but I had to cover all kinds of things, all kinds of subjects. And one was this pro ski racing circuit that came to a nearby ski area. And I just went up to cover it for a fun little feature for the paper. And I met the directors of the, of the pro tour and um, hit it off with them. And guess what? They were from New Hampshire. <laughs> Something about those New Hampshire people. So um, they, they were just awesome. And we, they would be checking with me throughout the species and sending me, you know, results in the races. And there are a bunch of Boulder-based uh, pros. So this is a fun thing. But the next year, um, the paper was failing, and the editor, um, she was being kind of an idiot uh, this one day. And I, without even thinking, went home, called up the pro ski tour and said, hey, you guys need a writer. Are you ready to take on a publicist? And I'm hearing myself saying this without even having thought it through. I was like, oh, my God, what am I doing? And then they said, this is great. We were thinking, it's time we got a media director. We would love to have Susie, but she won't leave the paper. And here your colleague, you're hired. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, that was a seasonal thing. I had to just through the winter. That's what happens when summer comes. Well, there had been this other event that I had covered with the paper. It was a professional bike race. And so I went to them and just said, hey, you know, I've been doing this in ski racing. Could uh, the bike race use a similar sort of person? And they were like, you know, your timing's awesome because the race director was handling a lot of the media and this point it was getting out of hand. So they hired me. Okay. Then, you know, it just kept happening like that. And it, now that I have grown kids and I'm trying to get them to own their, their talents and take chances, it's like you don't wait for that perfect opportunity. It's when you put your foot down through that new door, then another door opens up, but you wouldn't have been in that opportunity if you hadn't taken that first step. So all of my situations ended up being like that, where I just got into a new place and then a new opportunity happened, or you meet a new person who had such and such. And so I went back and forth between being a writer, editor, and publicist through, uh, through a lot of sports-based magazines and events. So it's fun. Yeah, it was fun. And when did you meet your husband? That was, um, I got a, I took a job just for the summer back east um, for a company in Allentown, Pennsylvania. And it was a company that was managing, I know, 
Wow. I was like, wow, holy cow. Yeah. <laughs> but it, the, the two guys who own this company, they were both uh, former pro uh, cyclists. And so they put on races around the country and managed a team. And they had me come on as a publicist. And so um, our first race was the, the, uh, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, of all places. And um, my job was to get there the week for the race and start trying to get media build up, you know, get some interviews, get some stories generated so that the crowds would finally show up for the two days of racing. And um, the guy who won the first day was this Canadian who I'd never heard of. <laughs> Had to interview him. And um, then I kept in, uh, running into him at other events over like the next month or so. So, um, yeah, he was from Toronto, and he ended up living near where my company was based because there was a velodrome there, and so they had a bunch of international athletes staying there and training and racing. So uh, long story short, we got together and got married two years. I brought him back to Boulder with me because my job, which was only supposed to be a summer, ended up being two years, and um, then came. so that's how we met. A lot of people think I got into the sport of cycling because I was with him, but I met him because I already had been in the sport working. So, And yeah. I, rem I remember that story now that you're telling it, although nobody else knows it. So you're working for, um, you, you're freelancing for outside, bicycling magazines at Celestial Season. I mean, you have like the coolest PR media writing <laughs> Uh, that's what people who went into journalism back in our generation, this is what they want to do. You got to travel and see stuff and triathlon magazines and books. And what, was there a favorite? A favorite job? Yeah, I think, uh, well, um, that's a hard one. I don't know if there's a favorite job, but there was a favorite period where, um, the time that I had two business partners and we co-founded the publishing company that um, was Bella News and Inside Triathlon Magazine. Um, we put together this company that we wish we had been able to work for, you know, in our own lives prior. So we made it this amazing community of people. Everyone who worked there wanted to be there. Most of the people were athletes, um, not pro, just that they were into cycling or into triathlon or into running or whatever. So it was a really fit office. I mean, the best butts and legs you could imagine walking around that place, <laughs> men and women. But it was just also a place where everyone was in it emotionally and professionally. Like it was, everyone was invested. So the, the vibe of the place was just so special. And, um, and everyone worked hard and we played hard. So I was really proud to have been behind that to have a big role in creating this place that so many people, I mean, today, this is back in the eighties, you know, uh, late eighties, early nineties. And the company has been bought out and it's changed and morphed into other things. But so many people from say the nineties who work there and uh, are elsewhere, we, we stayed in touch through a Facebook page as a closed community. Um, and we, I'll talk about still that that was like the best time. Like we all just were so happy in our jobs and, and loved our coworkers. You know, it was really, it was like a big family. It was good. That was good. And people don't understand if they treat their businesses more like you should treat your families. 
it would be a much, you'd have much better workers. So people were motivated to do the best and they were surrounded by other people doing the same thing. And and you just can't, you, you just can't find that very easily. Then you also launched a jewelry design business and you sold in a lot of boutiques. Where did that come from? <laughs> I know that was one of those. That, that's so off on the side here. <laughs> yeah. Well, I have worked through my first two kids. Um, and then when I, I got pregnant at 42 on purpose with my third kid, had him at 43. And that was when I decided I wanted to see what it was like to be a stay-at-home mom. I'd never done it. And so I had a really hard time <laughs> like having work, you know, and having getting up and, and having things places to go and things to do and eh, getting everybody out the door. Um, so that was a transition, but I stopped all my writing and I was just being the domestic goddess. And I um, didn't realize I needed that creative thing still to be happening, whether in whatever form. So I had a friend who, got into beading, you know, working with making things with beads and, and she had just had a baby too. And so we'd have the two babies were lying on the floor and she'd pull out these, these beautiful glass beads at all different sizes. And she started showing me how to string them together and how to make jewelry. And I was like, Oh, this is so pretty. Look at this beautiful stuff. <laughs> like you could make things. And it turned out I was really good at it, that I had this ability to the way I mix colors or textures, or whatever. And, I realized there was a parallel. It was kind of like, you know, creating a nice piece of jewelry. It was kind of like crafting a nice paragraph, you know, like having the flow, having these things work together. And um, so that, again, it just sort of happened. And I was making all this jewelry and I couldn't wear it all. Um, it was like I had, had to start selling it. And I actually was in this exercise class and this woman was admiring my bracelet. And she's like, oh, you know, you can sell it at this local boutique. And I was like, oh, yeah, boy, I doubt it. You know, that place is so cool. She goes, no, you could. I work there. We, we could sell ah. And I was like, oh. So she got me in the door, sold some stuff, and it ended up being, um, it took on a life of its own. And the funny thing is the owner of the store said to me one time that my jewelry was unusual, that she worked with a lot of uh, local artisans, handmade stuff. But she said mine was unusual because it appealed to such a wide range of ages. You know, normally it was younger or older or whatever, but it was mine of all these ages. People, the buyers were, you know, co- covering all the ranges. And I told her, well, that must be because I'm old, but I'm immature. <laughs> <laughs> Amen, yeah. sister. I like that one. <laughs> you, can, you can grow older. You just don't have to grow up. I guess that's the thing. But um, so, yeah, so I did that for quite a few years. And, um, and I mentioned, I think, to you that when I, favorite, most rewarding things out of that phase was um, this cancer foundation that my jewelry, my necklaces are fundraising uh, pieces for them. Then I got into that just because this is a upstate New Hampshire, Conway, New Hampshire, where um, one of my older brothers was the publisher of a newspaper and he ended up getting brain cancer. And he was very active in the community and um, you know, it was very tragic that he, it was glioblastoma terrible, terrible cancer. So the whole family was rocked by that, obviously. And we were going back there to have vacation when this was announced. So we were going to be there anyhow. And, um, you know, the Lance Armstrong bracelet, the live strong, the yellow that raised all that money for the um, cancer foundation. I decided to make our own version of that, but a necklace. And so like the leather necklace that you were talking about with your starfish, well, I 
they're unisex. Men or women can wear that leather cord, right? So I put together, um, I had a friend who's a silversmith make these little silver word tags and each had a word. And I, words mean different things to different people. So I gave everybody a choice. They could choose either believe, courage, faith, hope, or strength. And uh, my brother, Steve, immediately grabbed the courage and put that one on. But all my nieces and nephews, everybody grabbed it. So we were all wearing our Steve necklaces, you know, and he survived almost three years and then he passed. But he ever was the businessman. And so he said, how quickly can you make these? And I'm like, well, they, I can make them pretty quickly. I mean, you know, it's a very simple design. And he said, well, I have this idea. If we could use these necklaces to raise funds for the Jen's Friends Cancer Foundation here in town, and it's an organization that supports families dealing with cancer, whether they need help paying the bills, they need somebody to babysit the kids while they're at the hospital, maybe they need somebody to drive them to the hospital. You know, this foundation tries to offer the services, but it's a nonprofit. And so he had a friend who offered to seed money to buy the first batch of necklaces. And um, that was eight years ago. Gosh, I can't remember now. But they continue to sell it each year. I make a batch of necklaces for them. And then they sell them. And I don't know what the latest figure is for the amount of money that my necklaces have generated for them. But I'm pretty sure it's at least $30,000. So wow. that's a really, really amazing thing to feel like I, I made a bit of a difference there. Wow, I guess so. I didn't realize it was that involved um, from your brother. That's amazing. Yeah, yep. So, yeah, but once again, it wasn't like I planned on making jewelry when I grew up, and, and I didn't plan on making Rico Fit compression gear when I grew up. You know, it's just things kind of. It's, it's that flexibility and adaptability that I love about, I, I didn't realize the massive scope of it but you took that even as a shy person and when you're confronted with a situation staying home or uh, even being a journalist and wanting to do knowing you're losing your job you just take what kind of exposes itself and you go for it so you i love that about you that you see the kind of the solution in the problem at least part of the solution. And that, I mean, that's how Rico fit. So yay, let's talk about Rico fit. Because <laughs> now I, I know how to put them on. Um, yeah. And uh, and it was very curious to me. You're right. And the stuff's hot and uncomfortable. And if they have socks, you get a hole in the toe and you just throw them out and they're itchy. And, you know, people were talking about, I'm like, I don't know how you can wear these. You clearly haven't had the best ones. But, <laughs> but still, you took an issue that you were having with shin splints and running. And I loved the story when we met and learning about that process where you were like, okay, here's a, here's an issue. What's the solution and how can I can contribute to that? And you did, you started this whole company. How scary was that? Oh, uh, well, you know, I have to give credit to my husband, ex-husband now, mind you, but um, he was, you know, the former pro athlete who got into sportswear. Um, post racing career. And so he had the knowledge of textiles at this point and connection with the factory. I couldn't have done this without that, that experience on his part. Um, so yeah, together we, we came up with this because he had the wherewithal to say this is, you know, the compression was already out there. We didn't invent compression. That comes from the medical world and it was starting to be applied in the sports athlete performance world.
what was out there was really unappealing. So yeah, it really was just um, all about me, just seeing what, what could happen. And, and the good thing is being here in Boulder and being in the sports world, we had access to so many different kinds of athletes, from runners to triathletes to cyclists, uh, God, skiers, you know, the whole gamut. So it was easy for us to say, here, try this. You know, what do you think? And then we'd get feedback. And these athletes, they don't use it if it doesn't work, if they don't like it. You know, they're, they're pretty, uh, pretty demanding <laughs> on all kinds of levels, but in that regard, very demanding. So it was great to have that feedback to help me design and uh, market something that I knew to be a good, solid product. Um, the negatives is that it's, it's hard. You know, I had no idea what I was getting into. I really didn't. I mean, I was, I mean, I think a lot like, God, if I had known what I was going to be facing, would I have done this? But you start small, you know, and it, it just kind of keeps building on itself. And it's a very expensive, um, venture. You know, the fabric is, is the best and it's expensive and you got to have all this money up front to bring it in from Italy. And then we manufacture in Los Angeles, which is great because we can say made in USA. But then you got to pay all this money up front for them to cut and sew it. And, you know, and then you got to get out in the world. And then you're constantly banging on doors, you know, all those shops trying to get them to carry your product. And it's exhausting. And, um, and it takes a long time for that money to finally come back. People pay for it. And then, you know, you start getting the revenue. Well, then you got to put it back into the next production, you know. So um, it, it, exhausting it's hard and it's gone through so many renditions just with the way this um retail world has evolved and now you know people aren't really going to stores it's mostly online shopping and so working with that and um and understanding the shops are struggling you know and i'd be begging them come on we reorder and they're like well you know we're trying to carry less inventory and your product is good, but, you know, we get better pricing because of the big companies being able to, you know, leverage something else. And I'd be like, Ugh, why don't you want to take care of the independent little business person? <laughs> so it was just this constant battle that, um, yeah, it's, it's, been, it's been a learning process. I can't tell you how much I've learned, though. Oh, boy. The, uh, the lessons you learn, the skills you have to pick up, the, the uncomfortable situations that you're in that you have to figure it out you know just keep working and it's become something that i mean i don't see the the back of that and all of that but it's a product that's amazing that you most certainly can be proud of so that part is very good mm -hmm. i'm going to jump back in time again you're you had your youngest when you were 42 you said Yes. 43. Okay. Well, yeah. <laughs> and um, when um, your husband had, your, you know, he's your, now your ex-husband, but he had a heart attack the, when the youngest one was turning one. So he was 44, which, I mean, I'm, I'm older than that. And that's really young. Right. But in that you felt like he was recovering, but it was kind of, all of a sudden now he's faced with his own immortality mm -hmm. and things became a lot different for you then. So I know this is pre Rico fit, but take me back to that time. Right. Yeah. He, um, he had been, as I say, a pro cyclist, he was Canadian Olympian and then he raced as a pro for many years. Um, retired when he was 30 and went into working, uh, 
in the private world, you know, sports world. Um, but he continued racing for fun. And so he, there's a category, you know, as you know, the master's level of racing sports. So he had um, gone to the master's world's road championships in Austria uh, when he was like 41, 42. Can't remember exactly, it was, but it was around there. And he won. And so he backed off from racing for a bit. I had Liam, my youngest. And uh, that summer that Liam was turning one, he was training again. He wanted to go back in and defend his title. And it was, again, Austria. So he was training really hard. And um, we didn't know at the time. We've since learned what happened. But at the time, they couldn't figure it out. But he had a massive heart attack the week before he was supposed to be going to Europe. It was the week that my, you know, our youngest was turning one. And on a scale of one to 10, the cardiologist told me it was a seven. It was what they call the widow maker. But he survived it because he was so fit. So he had all these ancillary arteries. So it was scary. It was horrible. I mean, it was, you know, oh my God, I got these three little kids and he could have died. Um, and we've since, you know, figured this out looking, you know, hindsight's 2020, but he, he just, did not ever really face the fact that he had this heart attack. You know, he just, his body could not have betrayed him. You know, he was this elite athlete. And that. So fast forward, you can see how as he got into his early 50s, he was starting to have that midlife crisis kind of behavior. So, um, and you'd have these icky feelings. I mean, I would have these icky feelings and I wouldn't really want to like, you know, I try to confront him on it. Like, you know, why are you always hanging out with all your single friends? You know, all these Peter Pans and, He's like, because all our married friends are boring, you know, stuff like that. So, and he was always off doing his own thing. So it just started getting more and more uncomfortable and unpleasant. Things were tough. Um, and he was taking big risks financially with his business as well. The economy was not doing great, but he was, I think it was part of this whole, I'm, you know, Superman. And he wasn't thinking about how these risks could go bad or if they did, how that would impact the family. Um, you know, we have three kids. He can't be this rogue guy out there. So, but he was. And so financial disasters started unfolding. He, uh, his business was going down. He just, um, I mean, I was busy with the kids. I, I knew he was having some financial issues. But, um, you know, this one day he said in the kitchen, oh, you know, I owe the bank a lot of money. And I'm like, oh, okay. Like, how much? And I'm thinking he's going to say $400,000 and he said $2 million. Oh my gosh. I thought the floor was just opening up underneath me. I mean, I just about passed out, you know. So that was the beginning of the end because that was a horrible thing to try. We lost the house. The bank took the house, foreclosure. Um, the good news about that was the economy was so bad that the bank knew that they couldn't sell the house very easily. So they let us rent, stay in the house and rent it. So my kids' lives weren't too terribly upset, you know, with that. They got to see still be in their house, even though we were financially, you know, in trouble. And my husband's ex-husband's uh, investor sued him, took him to court, um, had filed bankruptcy. He did, not me. But this, like I said, it's a series of horrible events. And I kept thinking, Wow, what bad luck. Oh, what bad luck. You know, this is such bad luck. What? Well, at the time, I wasn't recognizing how risky he was living. And um, so that was rough. So that was until you know, 2008, 2009 when things were really bad. 
So fast forward to 2012, and we were really just, you know, holding on pennies and dimes and all that. Um, he'd landed this big job, and it was going to be awesome. It was like, fine, we're going to get out of this hole. Three weeks into the job, he had a stroke. <laughs> like, are you kidding me? Well, the stroke was related to the damage that the heart attack caused all those years before. So, um, not going into all the details of what the stroke involved, but he basically was paralyzed on the left side of his body. And it was going to take a long time for him to get out of that. So, and he was on the East Coast on a business trip when it happened. So, I had to fly back to Boston. And um, he was in the hospital at Tufts Medical Center and he was having trouble talking. So people were calling. And so I had told everybody, don't, don't call, send text. You know, I'll read, I'll read your text. And all these wonderful well-wishers, you know, are sending all these amazing messages. Well, he's wired up in the, in the neurology unit at Tufts. It was, it was a nightmare because they were saying the, the odds of him having a stroke are really big. And, and if it happens, you better hope it kills him because otherwise he's going to be a vegetable. And I'm just sitting there going, oh, my God, what do we do now? And so he'd be unconscious asleep uh, a lot of the time. And I would be sitting there reading the messages that are coming in on his phone and um, started getting some interesting ones. I was like, huh, who's that? You know, like that sounds a little cozy. <laughs> that sounds a little friendly. And long story short, I discovered sitting next to his hospital bed that he had been unfaithful. So that added to more drama, more like, are you kidding me? Are you, I mean, you can't make this stuff up. <laughs> you can't make this up. And was he cheating? Did he have a, one mistress? He had, uh, there were several women. He swears that they never really were sexual. But he, he I, you know, I think that's BS. You know, he was sneaking around. If you have to lie, it's cheating, you know, so... Um, a lot of people have since told me, yeah, he was screwing around. They knew it and they didn't want to hurt him. But so, yeah, you're like, I don't know which is worse. <laughs> Acting like everything's fine when, you know, people are sitting there going, ah, maybe we should clue you in. But anyway, that was, uh, that was very difficult. So, but, you know, he'd had a stroke. I couldn't like walk out. Wanted to, but didn't. So that was another year of, like, he couldn't drive for a year. Um, I had to take him to all his appointments and all the, the rehab, um, physical, cognitive, you know, it was a lot. But he, having been an athlete where you're buying over matter, you force your body, right? You train, you force your body to do what it's got to do. So that served him well. He healed, he healed very well. Um, but then we got hit by a massive flood. <laughs> Like what? I no. remember this first in that year. You so did you tell him? You confronted him mm -hmm. the affairs. Oh yeah. Of course, you're sitting by his bed thinking, if you don't die from a stroke, I might kill you. <laughs> <laughs> and what happened in that year with your relationship? Was there therapy involved? Did you discuss it? I mean, I know he's very sick at this point, and you're the caretaker. But how emotionally did you guys? Did you work through any of that? Yeah, well, he, you know, the one thing with a stroke, it's brain damage, right? Um, and a brain injury. And he went from being somebody who wasn't very emotional to getting very emotional as he was going through the healing process. And so he was sorry. 
you know, he actually said to me and one of my sons one day, why did it take a stroke for me to appreciate my family? And we're like, yeah, well, well we got warned. That emotional kind of moody, you know, weepy phase passes. And um, so he was very sorry and promising, you know, blah, blah, blah. He would never do anything like that again. And um, So I, you know, was like, let's see if we can fix this, you know. We, we did get therapy and all that. But, um yeah, he, he didn't really change, turns out. So A year later, though, you guys had this, it was a huge flood, massive flood in Boulder. And where you lived, the little stream that was seasonal became Three Rivers. Mm-hmm. And your business was in the basement, and the basement was filled with muddy water. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was this, uh, they call it a 500-year flood. It was like one of those historic things, like the odds of it happening are, you know, once in 500 years kind of thing. But it was a series of unfortunate events. The perfect storm, literally, that happened. Um, and Boulder and outlying surrounding communities all along the mountains. Anyone who was near a, a canyon, basically, took the first hit. And then it just spread out. So, yeah, we had this huge storm. Like 18 inches of rain fell in three days. And 18 inches is what we get in a year. So it formed these, uh, these rivers just kept climbing, climbing, climbing. So it wasn't like we had this wall of water just... It took several days where the water just kept building and these new rivers formed. And I mean, I actually joked on Facebook. I had this river flowing past my house and I took a picture of it and I posted on Facebook. I have like a waterfront property. <laughs> like, isn't this funny? Had no idea. And basically, um, it just kept climbing, climbing, climbing. And then it ended up flowing into our yard, not past the house, but filling the yard. And we saw this happening. It was taking, you know, over several hours. And we realized, uh-oh. We were getting ready to eat dinner, and we were watching the water creeping closer and closer to the window wells for the basin. So got some friends together, went downstairs, and and that's where I had all my office, all my in there. Started carrying things up the stairs, and then the water started filling the window well, which was really weird. It was this muddy water, and the glass started bulging inward, and it was so bizarre. It looked like plastic, you know, and then it exploded loaded glass shards just went flying and we all docked and luckily no one got hit in the face but so it did that through two windows and it just ended up uh floating 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 and we finally emergency crews arrived and said get out of here you're gonna get electrocuted and we're in waist deep water at this point still trying to carry stuff up the stairs and um the water ended up filling the basement to the ceiling i remember standing on the top step of uh on the main floor looking down the stairs to the basement the water came within three steps at the top, and um, it was just like you couldn't wrap your mind around it. You know, you just first you're praying that it stops, um, but it was it was huge. So the basement was destroyed, everything in it. Um, we did get out a lot of my Rico fit, thank goodness, computers and stuff, but had to gut the basement down to the um, drywall. I mean, down to the cement. I mean, all the furniture, drywall, everything. So that ended up being so, so devastating on so many levels. It was emotionally just, uh, I mean, I, I hear running water to this day. This was September of 13. I hear running water to this day and I get PTSD. It's like, what is that? Where's the water? You know, like, wow, this is really bizarre thing. But yeah, I had to apply to FEMA. I had to work with, um, the flood recovery programs for the county and the state. Um, I had to do it both personally and 
professionally because the business was impacted being in my house as well as my house. So it was several years that I just, I look back at and there's a lot, like I can't even remember. It's, 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 I don't know if it's a blur as much as, as just uh, blanking out because it was just too awful. And it took you years just to get through all the government agencies and yeah, it took two years to rebuild the basement because we couldn't afford to do it with our own funds. So we had to work with um, a lot of volunteers and um, their grants. I had to apply for grants out the wazoo. I just, uh, the bureaucracy was amazing, but I was determined, you know, I was determined. Like always. Now, showing up, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Funny how that pattern is showing itself. Yeah. <laughs> so in the middle of all of this rebuilding the basement, now, is this the house you lost in the bankruptcy that you're still living in or had you moved at that point? No, no. We, we stayed in the house of uh, the bankruptcy because we were able to rent it back. And then, um, so let's see, 2011, we cashed in, um, our 401ks and savings to put a down payment on the house. So we were able to buy it back, although it was at market rate. So, you know, it was our mortgage like doubled. We shouldn't have done it. I mean, in hindsight, we, we should have just walked away. But I love that house. We built that house. And it was on this amazing part of Northwest Boulder, right up against the mountains. And um, yes, that was the curse, it turned out. But um, it was just such a beautiful place. And the kids grew up there. So, yeah, so we we basically had to rebuild it and then with the divorce coming down uh for sure finally that house was all of our of our investments you know we had nothing else outside of that so we had to uh get the house fixed up so we could sell it but during this time that you're doing the cleanup the flood recovery and rebuilding the house and personal stuff and <laughs> business stuff there was another issue that came up that instigated the divorce correct yeah it was the, the, the nail in the coffin, basically. How yeah. did you, you find out about it and whatever you're willing to discuss about it? Well, we had um, these funds for uh, flood repairs and some family loans. Um, people trying to help us to be able to, I mean, the volunteers weren't able to fix everything. We had to you know, have some money out of pocket and plus, my husband was able to work. He was on disability. Um, he kept trying to get jobs. And anyway, that's another story. But um, he was spending money, but I couldn't figure out where it was going. Like this money that was supposed to be for the flood. It was just, there were things happening that I was like, you know, what? Where is this? And long story short, um, he was in therapy at that point, trying to deal with um, the emotional issues with the stroke. And partly through our relationship. And um, I had expressed to the therapist, I'm concerned about something here that's happening. You know, this, he's saying that he doesn't have any of this money. And I'm like, this is, how can it be gone? And, you know, for him to see if he can explore that with him. Long story short, the therapist told me that he was involved in an online affair. And he'd been taking the money and sending it to this woman. I was, I couldn't even, once again, once again, I couldn't even find the words. It was mind blowing. But I was taking care of all the flood recovery too. He wasn't helping with any of that. And um, 
for him to be then playing around on I mean, he's never met this woman but she was you know pleading for help and who knows what um, there's it was ages ago he anyway was sending for money so that was like okay i'm not gonna be nice anymore <laughs> i've been understanding but now we gotta like we gotta wrap this up so it was bizarre you know we were separated for a couple of years but living together because we couldn't afford for him to live elsewhere because we had to fix the house and the house is big so and i started doing airbnb out of the house to help bring in some money and um i mean you just get creative you know you just start okay what can i do here how can i keep doing the rico fit thing and keep trying to get sales going there and let's rent out a room or two with airbnb which actually was a lifesaver kept uh kept things moving until we finally could put the house in the market get divorced and move on so the divorce was final last well a year ago actually this month but it should have happened four years ago <laughs> i actually remember talking to you six years ago uh, and that was before the stroke but after the heart attack and I, we didn't talk in great depth, but I was in a pretty volatile relationship at that point also six years ago. And I remember thinking, first, there's more to this. And second, I was surprised you were still hanging on as well. And that was before you found out a lot. But there was, there's always undercurrents that no one sees. And sometimes girls just talking about it, you know, I, I wasn't surprised when i found out i'm sure a lot mm -hmm. of people tell you that like we're all waiting for you to come to the conclusion yourself because you don't want to see relationships end we right. none of us gets married to get divorced or start a relationship to end a relationship and you do have that like all of those tags on your necklace hope mm -hmm. faith believe you know you you want that to be true mm -hmm. you want to be worth it you want it to work out and so I'm sure you've heard people say that you weren't surprised, but I think always I am hopeful because you want the, we want the success stories. Right. Right. So was he at all surprised at the divorce? Oh no, he wanted it too. No. Okay. He, oh yeah. No, it was, yeah. He, you know, he had checked out, I think back when he was running around with all the single friends and you know, I, He'd say he was meeting so-and-so, this guy friend, you know, for dinner. And then I'd see on Facebook the next day picture of, yeah, this guy friend and these other women and they're at the bar and they're doing, you know, selfies. And, and I'd be like, you, you said you uh, were just going to be meeting blah, blah, blah. Oh, yeah, well, we ran into these other people. And, you know, and I'd be like, you know, you, you keep having those little alarms go off and then you you'd question yourself. You'd say, oh, I'm being jealous. Oh, I'm being suspicious. Oh, you know. You know, I'm the one who's overreacting. You know, you go through all that. And when there's kids involved too, you know, you I think you go that extra mile, just going, oh, let's keep everything just okay. You know, don't rock the boat. But how did the how did the kids react? Well, luckily my kids, you know, are older. You know, I can't imagine um, going through all this with little kids. So my youngest is 18. So obviously, you know, he was eighth, ninth grade when my husband had the stroke, but um, just over the years and all the, they, they knew, they of course could not, not know with everything that was uh, being revealed. So they were angry, 
you know, they, um, they had to work through it and they resented him for a long time. But once the divorce happened, uh, I, I told them, yeah, of course, personally, I want you to be mad at him for imploding our family, but he is your dad. And so you have to have your own relationship with him and don't feel guilty if you're getting together with him. I mean, you have to, if that's important, you know, if he's your dad. So I've tried to be open about that and, and authentic that I do want them to have a relationship with him. But um, he just, uh, he's happy of being off on his own and riding his bike and, you know, just doing his Peter Pan thing. <laughs> Which is great that both of you decided that you wanted it and that you followed through and that you did what it took, even though that was really hard. Mm -hmm. And now you are running Rico Fit, which it, I mean, again, I can't even stress how much I love the company and the product and you, um, <laughs> but you've also resumed publishing and writing and editing. Mm -hmm. Yes, I have. So what are you doing in that realm? That's, you know, that's, I love that part of me, you know, that I'm so comfortable in that space. So there is this little publishing company here in Boulder that, does a very specific magazine program where it aligns with different cities, transportation departments, as they are trying to promote multimodal transportation, alternate transportation, promote cycling, and uh, all the aspects of making a more livable community based on transportation options. And so it sounds really dry, but it's actually been really fun. So um, Cambridge, Massachusetts, Massachusetts, uh, Anchorage, Alaska, Seattle, Denver, Boulder, um, Phoenix. We we work with these planners, the transportation planners, and they have the messages that they want to get out. So they're dictating the content of the magazine uh, that we make custom for them. So they may have a whole new bike uh, path facility plan they want to promote and they want people to know it, to use it. They may be doing major changes to mass transit. They may be building um, overpasses or underpasses, trying to get pedestrians to their destinations without being afraid of getting run over. So it's it's stories like that, but um, also great bike routes, you know, or you know, profiles of people who bike to work. Um, fun things to do: how to go biking and camping. Uh, how uh, you can be eating a certain way to sustain, you know, your commute. I mean, just fun stories like that. So I get to work with these different communities and um, I edit the magazine. I, I try, some of their writing is a little, you know, bureaucratic city sounding. And so we have to try to make it more fun. But I also get to write stories um, and just the whole editing process and building the magazine and, and ending up with a finished product. And they're always so happy. You know, they, they, they mail it to the residences and um, it's, it's just a fun thing to be doing the publishing. So, and I love the fact that I'm working with alternative transportation and cycling, which I've always been in as a sport, but seeing it now from this angle of how it's part of a community being more livable. So that's, uh, that's been fun. I was really excited to hear about that. So <laughs> I think we've learned um, a lot about resilience and adaptability and flexibility today talking to you and just a strong passionate beautiful woman who is willing to take risks and I appreciate that example well thank you well I'd like to say I had it all planned out in advance but no 
Rafa. You know, I sometimes think it wouldn't be as fun and exciting if we weren't flying by the seat just a little bit. But I mean, an outline maybe I'd appreciate an outline. <laughs> just right. a little bit. Just a little four one one would be good. Sometimes maps are helpful. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. Yeah. So. Thank you for being on and for sharing your story and to find uh, RicoFit, it's RicoFit.co. And then on Facebook, I have it in show notes. Susie's pretty easy to find and very gracious with communication. So uh, get yourself some compression gear. And I'm excited about the publishing and the, the magazines. That's very exciting. So thanks. And you know, if you, I just thought of this on the spot, but you know, if you want to tell your listeners, um, if they want to order online, any of the products, use code HEALTH, H-E-A-L-T-H. That'll give free shipping. Woo, thank you. Why not? Why not? Health. All right. Free yeah. shipping. Perfect. All yeah. right. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for listening in to Jen Taylor Rerouting. Like, share, and of course, comment. I welcome Input with Attitude. Get a copy of my book on Amazon, Hello, My Name is Warrior Princess, or check out my website, jentaylor.net. And if you still want more, sign up for one of my coaching packages.